0: Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a
1: Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching.
0: And you are just on the edge of being here, aren't you?
1: I am because I am ready for a vacation. Taking the family on a little trip, on a cruise, and looking forward to it.
0: Yes. Yeah, so we we might we not might not be as um, loquacious or as astute as we <laughs> normally are, because uh, Yolando's got one foot out the door, and we're in my office with no air conditioning. It's all good. It's all good. What's astonishing you?
1: Let's see. This morning, I was um, leading the devotion for the kids at our summer camp, and um, you know, I I picked what. I thought was a simple story about jesus I and mean, i love the miracle stories mm-hmm. uh, of jesus and um i think i said in the last podcast we've just been reviewing the kind of big picture of the biblical story and so now we're just looking at stories about jesus and so i chose uh in my forgive me <laughs> my rush to get ready uh because i wasn't totally prepared but i, I chose one of my favorite stories, miracle stories, which is the feeding of the 5,000. It's found in all four gospels. And, uh, I was, and I I just pulled, um, my son's, my nine-year-old son's children's Bible, um, off the shelf and took it with me. And I read that story and, um, and then we just told it in our own words and the kids were amazed. I, I, I mean, I've been meeting with them for more than a week and their, the attention was just keen. You could have heard a pin drop, like mouths were open and they asked like, are you mean, do you mean to tell me that Jesus fed all those people with five loaves of bread and two fish? Like they asked me that several times, like, hold up, like say that again Mm -hmm. and I'm telling a story that I have heard and preached many times and I love it. Right. But I, my astonishment was renewed by their astonishment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I came back to, Oh yeah, this really is amazing. Jesus really is amazing. And I, I just got a glimpse. It was just for a moment, a glimpse of seeing Jesus through their eyes, right? And just right. this kind of fresh experience of amazement and astonishment and awe of who Jesus is.
0: I do think that it's it's just, that's one reason that it's so helpful to be in a multi-generational community yeah. because it's so easy for us as adults to just like, we're familiar with the stories.
1: And we love the stories.
0: And, and we just, you know, it's just not unusual to hear it or to think about it or to believe it. And, and we just continue to sort of shave edges off the story to make it seem more reasonable. Or we're looking for meaning that is there, um, but that is beyond sort of the startling, unbelievable truth of the supernatural nature of the miracle. And, and we do it, you know, to try to make our, the revelation of Jesus more sort of harmonious with the culture around us. Um, and the reality is, like, you you can't, like, you, you, if you don't have a level of cognitive dissonance, when you walk away from a story of Jesus, then you haven't really heard it, right? Like, it should make it be like, well, if this is true, this is going to change all of my settled belief and all of my settled understanding. And it's really easy for us as adults with jobs and like roles that we function in the world as it is to just... You know, we just smooth that down because we don't we don't want to be unsettled, and it's really helpful to have kids. Like I remember being in seminary and studying this, and my New Testament professor, who I really loved, was just like, "Hey, I don't ever want to hear you all preaching about, you know, the the child and John gave their lunch, and then it was an inspiration, and everyone else you know, like the moral, of the lesson in this story isn't we already have enough, and Jesus inspires us to share. No. This is a story about a manifestation of the miraculous abundance that exists in Jesus. And if you like smooth off the edges to make it reasonable, you are committing, you know, malpractice because the text is clear. This is not a lesson about sharing.
1: There's one scholar that says, here's what really happened. Jesus knew there was going to be a crowd. Right. He knew that they would follow him to that particular location, and so there were caves nearby, and he had a lot of food stored away in the caves, and what he did was he he um, had the disciples create kind of a, you know, how they uh, uh, create sandbags, they create this like chain line, one person puts sand in the bag and tied up and you pass Bless. it down the right and so there was a, a, a line of disciples to the cave and so one would go into the cave and they would pass it and somehow get it to jesus and he would hand it to the one disciple who would give it to the people as if the food was being multiplied but he already had it stored away in caves okay. like that that was a one particular scholar's explanation of what happened
0: was that scholar crossing <laughs>
1: i can't remember who but i would not but i mean i just
0: you know we want to say like oh no we are reasonable people and we are you know sophisticated intellectual you like post superstitious people and so we want to like somehow interpret the stories sometimes as if there is no supernatural element to them and i mean obviously you can twist the bible to make it say whatever you want but that is a You know, that's a distortion of the text. The text is, this is a miracle.
1: Yeah, and I need to say, uh, the kids uh, that I was with this morning range in age from eight to about 16, and so it's a pretty, you know, wide range of ages, and most of them had not heard that account before. I think only two.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's funny, because I was talking to somebody in anticipation of the um, worship on Sunday, and about... children's sermon and I was saying like we just need to um or would you please just tell the story of the Good Samaritan? And I think like to your point, sometimes we're so busy like teaching kids how to behave or teaching values Mm -hmm. or teaching, you know religious like theology that we're not just telling the stories. And I think it's like a control move, right? Like we don't want to just tell the stories because then the kids can interpret them in any in any way. We want to say to them, here's the story and here's what it means. And I think it's important that we just are telling, you know, we're telling the stories um, because.
1: Which is really what the gospel writers do. They correct. they collect these stories. They put them in a narrative. And, you know, the gospel of Mark ends in a way that is pretty abrupt, but leads you that forces you to draw your own conclusions right. about the life and ministry of Jesus.
0: Right, because asking the question what does this mean? Like that is a faithful que- that is the question we should ask. But what we shouldn't do is just go and ask some other human or institution to to tell us that. Like you, we should be living constantly with the with the discomfort of wondering what does this mean, and yeah. when when we hear a story or when we hear a word and are just like, "Oh, I know that! I know what this means!" Like that is when we are really, um, you know, using the Lord's name in vain.
1: Yeah. At the end of our time every uh, day, I just ask for questions. Like, do you have a question about this or anything? And it has it hasn't happened yet, but I'm waiting for the time in which i need to say to the kids gathered i don't know the answer to that okay no, but I'm not saying, no, I'm not, I know no. where you're going. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that so far, you know, in, with, with, with. It hasn't with, happened It yet. hasn't happened yet. No one has ever but, asked me They haven't me stumped a question. me yet. That's not no, what I'm saying. No,
0: yeah. Um, That's I just not what point I'm out, saying. I, I can see it on your face. No, it's so wrong. It's even worse. Because I was going to point out before that you were like, and they were listening. And they were. And there pin drop. And their mouths were <laughs> open. I'm like, the <laughs> power of your proclamation. <laughs> So like, wrong I, like, why they were
1: spelled why back. i and, thought we were friends and, and I, I thought we were I, friends and the
0: day might come <laughs> that i might have to say to them even so i i was me even made. i do not know
1: <laughs> i was responding to what you were saying that yes yeah. there 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 needs to be a place where we just wrestle with what do these things mean? And sometimes we have to walk away saying, "I don't know yet."
0: I mean, I do think that one of the fundamental revelations of God is mystery, right? Yeah. And so we we need to be really honest with um, everyone in our faith communities to say it's it's not that God is unknowable, but we cannot know the fullness of god so that's not meaning we don't know anything and we can trust you know the goodness of the mystery and we can trust you know intimacy with um the mystery of god but it's just this like holy paradox both of the incarnation that god was made flesh and walked among us and we can have intimacy with god and that's amazing and also there are there is that which is inherently like the glory of God is not, you know, on this side of eternity. Um, we see through a mirror dimly yeah. and that and just like living with that truth. And we and that's so frightening for us. And we want to say, like, nope, I can know everything. And if I know everything, then I feel safe. And the reality is that's how we then trade worship of the living God for worship of an idol. Absolutely. So
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what's astonishing you?
0: Um, I, I think, um, I mean, the truth is what's astonishing right now is just what people are carrying in my community. Mm. And, um, you know, it is just, um, you know, the word awful, like comes originally from the idea that a, a moment or an event is full of awe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so we use awful as like just it's bad. Yep. <laughs> um, and there is just a way that those two meanings are not contradictory. Like there is a kind of awe and reverence at being in the presence of something truly terrible or or just being invited into relationship or being trusted with a story that is awful and and awe-filled mm. that just the way people bear it and walk it out and seek the Lord in it and find God in it um, and so I think you know the, the real truth is right now I am astonished at you know the beauty and the courage um, and just the glory of people in their weakness so sincerely and beautifully seeking to be faithful In situations and circumstances that are just unbearable, and I think you know one of the great privileges of being a pastor is that people will tell you their stories, and and often, and what I like will sometimes tell you their story of what they're going through, and then also say like, "I'm sorry, you have to hear this," Mm. and I'm just like, "Oh, like." I you know, I do not need to be cared for as I listen to you, you know, share the story like it's a just it's an awful and awe-filled gift. and um I mean, I know it's like a meme like you know, be kind to everyone and you don't know and like we hear it so familiar that we're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, but I mean, it's so true. and I think, it's so important for us as a community of faith that we, you know, we still need to have right expectations of one another and we still need to like create healthy boundaries. And, um, you know, that, that there's, there's still a way that we need to walk in relationship with one another, regardless of what we're going through, but also just having an awareness that you don't get to know Um, so there's some people who are going through things that it's just visible and you know they are, and that is appropriate. And then there's some people who are carrying things that for all kinds of, um, just absolutes, you, you just don't get to know what they're carrying and they will do a good, and it's not because they're being insincere and it's not because the community is garbage. It's just because of the way our stories are intersectional and, you know, I can't tell my story without telling your business. And so you just won't don't know what people are carrying. And I do think like, this is why I think it's so important that in our communities, we, I mean, I would like in the world in general, but especially in the body of Christ that we would, you know, we still need to address problems, and we still need to address behaviors, but it would just be really nice if we could have some curiosity, and some compassion, and giving people some benefit of the doubt in you know, not assuming that we know why they're doing what they're doing. And like, anyway, but I just, you know, there just have been, um, I've been really honored to um, just sit with and listen and bear witness as people um, have shared what they're carrying right now. And I just uh, am astonished at the it's just the gift of it and the um, way the presence of the Lord inhabits that. Because I, you know, I guess, and this is the last thing I'll say, but, you know, we expect that when things are going really, really well, um, then something amazing has happened. We're like, yeah. oh, I just, you know, I feel the presence of the Lord or God is with me. and I, And that's true. That is really true. But I think that what is harder to talk about, but what is equally true is that when truly terrible things are happening to people often there is an there is an experience a, f- a feeling and awareness of the presence of god that is just a a different manifestation of what people are aware of it's like a special grace i think that people can receive
1: yeah i i label that hunger um it, it reminds me of the psalm where um uh, the psalmist says as the deer longs for sl- longs for flowing streams so my soul longs for you that there is a place when you are walking through something really challenging um really tragic um you are hungry even desperate there's kind of a holy desperation for the presence of god that god is um and god is faithful to meet you there
0: Yes. And also, you know, I be clear, sometimes people are going through terrible things and what they're experiencing is the absence of God, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't, you know, but I, but it is hard to say, you know, this awful thing has happened. And yet I am experiencing the tenderness of God or the goodness of God, like I never have before in my life. Like, that's a hard thing to talk about, because it it makes people, it, it makes it seem as though you're saying that this, thing that you're going through isn't isn't a problem or it's worth it or like it's just really hard the one person that I've heard talk about it um publicly in a way that I think is really helpful is that um oh, I'm gonna forget her last name her first name is Kate <laughs> I can remember that um and she wrote um everything happens for a reason and lies I've loved um and she um but she talks about she was um a divinity professor at duke and was diagnosed with terminal cancer probably i don't know at this point maybe 10 years ago when she had a two-year-old son and um she just got this terrible diagnosis kind of out of nowhere and um you know obviously is still here so you know was her her life was preserved in a way that no one expected but what she talks about um in that great in that season of great upheaval and just suffering that, especially in the beginning, there was just a palpable presence and anointing like that, that, you know, in all the raw terror and loss, she just experienced the presence of God in a way that she never did before and really never has sense now that her diagnosis is a, is a chronic disease. And, and I think that that is just really, um, you know, it's just hard to make sense because I, you know, when it comes right down to it, a lot of us are like, yeah, I want to feel the presence of God because I want all the good things that come with it. And so when we say like, well, you can have the presence of God, even, you know, when you're great injustice or when you're going through great tragedy or suffering, even when you're losing, a lot of us, if we're really honest, would be like, well, what's the point, right? Like, and, and so I think, I don't know, but I just, um, those are really, I I am astonished at how sacred those moments feel, even though, you know, you can't do anything. I mean, you pray with people, but I think, um, you know, when I was, being trained for ministry in an institution where there was probably more overlap that there should have been with like social work, <laughs> like this idea that like, yes, and here are the practical ways you can help people when they're going through something. And like, obviously we want to bear one another's burdens and we want to, you know, be helpful when we can, but ultimately when you're accompanying someone, you're pastoring someone, you're, you're with them and, and, even and especially your presence is important when you can't fix it and you can't help and you can't make it better. You just, there's something sacred about being present and that's, you know, hard to desire.
1: At Dorada Church, uh, we met uh, a woman, second career in our neighborhood who was finishing up um, her work to become a chaplain and um, she has become part of our community now, um, Cece and her husband, um, Elwood. And um, I remember one day we were just talking about ministry, and I asked her, you know, what's, what's the most important thing you have learned as a, as a hospital chaplain? Um, and she said, it's the ministry of presence. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm the kind of person that wants to say something or do something to fix it. I want to help and I want to fix it and to be in a space where you can't always fix it for people, but knowing that your presence is a help, your presence really is a help. She said that was a, it was, it was hard for her to come to terms with that. But now that she has, she can see the power of it and she can, she now has, um, a new, uh, a fresh understanding of those places in Scripture where God says, I will be with you. I will be with you.
0: And I think, like, again, it's right there in plain sight once we allow ourselves to see, like, you know, when Paul is saying, I've learned the secret of contentment in all circumstances, and then lists all of these, you know, terrible things that he's been through. And I think, again, we continue to just sort of want to, we we read Scripture, you know, reading to hear what we want to hear. And so we, we pay attention to all the promises of scripture and they're there. Like God does promise blessing and God does promise deliverance and God does promise, you know, just healing and salvation and miracles, right? Like we start with the feeding of the 5,000, but we don't notice, or we sort of, you know, edit out like, these other promises and revelations of like Paul saying, like I'm super faithful and my faithfulness has gotten me shipwrecked and beaten and arrested. And, you know, or, you know, the times that the Psalms are right there preserving the prayers of the people who are like, God, where the flip are you? (laughs) And the times where God has said, Hey, through the prophets, like you are going through right now. And this is, this is your fault. Right. (laughs) Like, and just all of these places that like, um, I have an aunt who's an optometrist and she um, was telling me like at one point, like I was home for Christmas break and all of a sudden like my eyes were just bothering me and like I I was like my peripheral vision was messed up and like all of a sudden I was just like seeing like the edge of my nose and I was like it's just driving me crazy and I was like, oh my gosh, do I have brain cancer? (laughs) Like I just, you know, that's where I go and I was talking to her about it and she was like, hey, what you don't understand is that your eyes always see like the edge of your nose like uh, like your eye the physical data is being imported to your brain all the time but what your brain does is it just doesn't process all of the visual data it's getting so it just sort of edits out that that side view of your nose cuz it's annoying to sure. see like you don't want um and I think, you know, whereas that's a really, like, beautiful and healthy aspect of creation adaptation. adaption when it comes to our vision, we do the same thing when we are receiving a revelation from God, is that sometimes we just, like, synthesize out, we hear, we listen but don't hear, we see but do not perceive the parts of the revelation that we don't want or that are unpalatable to us, and then, um, you know, over the fullness of time, we recognize... Oh, I didn't want to hear that God would be with me in tragedy. That didn't seem like good news to me because I really wanted to believe that there would be you no know, tragedy in my life. But then when I get deeper in and you know, begin to have the full human experience of there is tragedy and there's loss, period. Suffering is a non-negotiable. Then all of a sudden, the revelation of scripture that God is with us in suffering becomes good news because you know, the only thing worse than suffering is suffering alone. And um and, and even even the revelation in Scripture that sometimes people feel abandoned by God, which is terrible, and we think well, that's never going to happen to me. but then when we have the very human experience of feeling abandoned by God, then all of a sudden that unwelcome word becomes a lifeline because it gives us hope that, oh, this too is part of the human experience of being loved by God. And
1: I have a very good friend um, that I've known for, 25 years. Um, she is not a preacher, she is an attorney, and she's gone through many, many just heartbreaking things in life. And she will call and we will talk, and <laughs> now she will say to me. Okay preacher boy that she refers to me as preacher boy. Yeah yeah preacher boy tell me what you're going to tell me. Like she knows I'm always going to say I know you feel alone but God is with you.
0: Right.
1: And she'll and she pushes back every single time, right. but I feel I feel these things have happened, these things have happened. But at the same time she seems to long to hear me say right. you are not alone. Right. Just let me remind you. I know you feel it. You are not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, I think it's such a human thing for pastors and people in general that when someone is hurting, we just want to make it better. And yeah. part of that is genuinely caring about them. But part of that is caring about ourselves, right? Like it feels good to be the one who makes it better. And so then the question is, are you still going to be faithful? Are you still going to be present with people when you can't make it better? Are you going to say, well, I can't fix this, so I'm going to just move away, <laughs> like move on down the road? So, um, yeah. Well, are we going to think, are we talking about the same? We're I think we're thinking thing? about the same yeah. thing. Um, so, we wanted to talk. I have been thinking, you've been thinking about the Supreme Court and. I've been
1: avoiding it, but right. I'm ready to talk about it.
0: Um, yeah, I just want to talk about um, specifically, there've obviously been lots and lots and lots of um, precedent chattering decisions on the Supreme Court lately. Um, and the one I want to talk about the most, because it just intersects with kind of one of the core themes of our of this podcast, is the Supreme Court decision on um, affirmative action when it comes to admission in so-called, sorry, I'll move the mic closer. Um, the Supreme Court decision on affirmative ma- action when it comes to admission to so-called um, elite universities. And um, <laughs> um, and I just, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I, I, I just think it's really important for, I, I, I think that Black people and people of color know this. So I think it's really important for white people to just understand that in saying that it is now illegal for universities to consider race in admission, but it is still, it's illegal to give preference for any to any race um, in admission. But it is still legal to give preference to legacy students. What the Supreme Court is saying is it is not okay to consider race as a factor in admitting a student, but it is okay to give preference to students whose parents and grandparents attended these institutions when they were segregated by race. So what is still legal is to give preference to white students, but what is now illegal is to say, Our university is actually a better academic community when we have students and faculties representing all racial groups. Um, So we can no longer admit people based on that desire, but we can still continue to say, hey, if you're... If you are from an ethnic group that your ancestors were allowed to be here when other groups were prohibited by race, you can still have that um, th- that edge here, and that you know is astonishing to me, and it's astonishing to me in a terrible way that when that same court can say to a private business like a bakery or a web designer, you can say, "I do not will I will not serve." marginalized groups because it's against my religion, but a private university is not allowed to say, hey, according to our values, we value a diverse and multi-ethnic and multicultural community. And so we are going to admit students and, you know, take, you know, ultimately a university is is a a business, right? You are exchanging goods for services. So as a web designer, I can say, I will not serve gay clients because that's a violation of my values. But a university is not allowed to say, we want to have a diverse student body that's reflective of our culture. So we are going to admit students looking at the whole, you know, the wholeness of they are and considering historic factors that have been racialized like access to public education like this is just um it it, it is i mean it is white supremacy and i think that's what i think white people have a hard time understanding that when we talk about systemic racism and it feels like this like nebulous undefinable reality and as i know that as a white person it can just feel like okay well Whenever something doesn't go somebody's way, they just cry systemic racism, and then we just have to like accept it. I mean, it's just hard to understand what it is as a white person because we don't, because we haven't directly experienced systemic racism. But one of the, but this is an example. So right now, the legal system is saying it is okay to give a white candidate preference because of legacy which is based on race, but it is not okay to give a black candidate preference based on their race. And the whole thing can be done under the auspice of being race neutral or race blind. And that is, you know, scholars who study this will say, this is the thing about systemic racism. You don't have to be a prejudiced person. Um, The whole point of a racist system is that Even that any person just following rules and procedures, the system will produce racialized outcomes, regardless of what's in the heart of the people who are just fulfilling their roles. And, you know, I was writing a little bit this on social media, you know, when we say we just want a race blind admission, we just want to say, hey, if you want to get in here, you just have to get a three on the AP physics exam, right? I don't care what color you are, you just have to get a three on the AP physics exam. And anybody who gets a three on the AP physics exam can get in. But if um, you go to a public school, based on the place that your family can afford to live, and your public school doesn't offer physics, much less AP physics, and you don't have access to the AP physics exam, then saying I have a race neutral admissions policy that says, I don't care what color you are, you just have to get a three on the AP physics exam. That is obviously going to produce racialized outcomes, because white students are going to have a greater ability to have access to the public, not just the private, but the public schools that give them those opportunities. And that's you know, that's how the system works. Like I hear people, there's a lot of conversations in Charlotte right now about, you know, changing the busing patterns in our public schools. And by the way, Charlotte has resegregated in its public schools and we bus now more than Charlotte ever did when it was segregated. But now, you know, schools are mostly divided around income levels, which still tend to track, on racial identity, but you hear people saying as they're fighting over, no, this neighborhood has to go to that school, and it's not fair to change it and make us go to a different school, and, you know, you're stealing from us, and we bought land, you know, we bought our houses so we would get this school, and not recognizing that, like, A, the amount of generational privilege that people have had In many cases, in order to even be able to buy a house, period, much less a house in a quote good neighborhood. But then, you know, people say, like, it's just even Stephen, it's just fair. If they want to go to that school, they need to buy into my neighborhood without recognizing that to have access to the kind of resources, it's it's just not it's not pure merit. And I think white people, we we have been taught and we have experienced hey if you work hard you get the best things and if you work less hard you get the less best things and and that is can be the reality for white people but it is not the reality for black people and people of con- color in the United States of America because a lot of your ability to work hard depends on you were born into a family that had a house in this neighborhood That they had because their parents got, you know, the GI Bill benefits and other people who served in exactly the same way didn't get it. And I think, you know, that's it's just I know systemic racism is a hard concept for some people to to grasp because we just want to say, hey, the 60s happened and now everything is fair. And we just don't want to look at the fullness of, you know, how sin Is really toxic and the sin that the Bible talks about most though we edit it out is the sin of injustice
1: yeah you used a word several times that I think is key and that word is access is really all about access and we're just gonna have to fight once again for access into these institutions because the reality is it's not only about these institutions of higher education once you get in those institutions, that opens the doors to jobs and corporations. And so if you don't get in some of those doors, that just shuts us out of a lot. And um, I am, I saw this coming and yet again, still just deeply disturbed, primarily because it is revealing to me once again the white supremacy that is within the conservative evangelical church. Because if, there, if there's a group of people that should be loud <laughs> about this, about correcting what has been wrong, it is conservative evangelicals. But I think they are so um, in bondage to white supremacy, that they, they can't see the sin of, of white supremacy.
0: Well, I mean, I just also think if your fundamental takeaway of the gospel of Jesus Christ is some people are our evil enemies and we have to protect ourselves or they'll destroy us, like if that's your takeaway from the revelation of Jesus Christ, and if your takeaway is you know we have to do whatever it takes to protect ourselves from them i mean that's just that's an antichrist theology right i mean the fundamental revelation of the gospel as i read it is that god is destroying enmity by the power of resurrection life and so you know you you have most you know most of the new testament written by a person who was once an enemy and a persecutor of the cross and who says on the other side of redemption, I consider all of the privilege and all of the categories and all of the identity that I had before, just like garbage and loss in comparison to the surpassing value of this new life I have in Jesus. And I think, you know, for too many Christians, what we want is the spiritual privilege of grace while holding on to the privilege of ide- and identities that we've had in a hierarchical society. And we want to say the exact opposite of the gospel, which is Jesus coming to say, hey, the kingdom of God is here, and all of this is being overturned and destroyed so that people will once a li- again live in shalom, not just with one another, but with creation itself. And so this alternative structure of um, just and competition is being overturned and we we want to say like no 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 just just give us you know a kinder gentler Mm -hmm. hierarchy where the people who deserve to excel excel and the people who deserve to um suffer suffer and that is you know that's anti-grace
1: When I was a kid in the 80s, especially during the Reagan years, I remember very clearly, very clearly, a lot of criticism of especially inner city black women, right, as welfare queens. And the word to them was, you need to get yourself together, get an education, get a job. And... There's been a generation of black women who have gotten advanced degrees, who are doing well in the corporate world. I mean, they, th- there's just a, a generation of black women who have um, worked really hard to advance. And I think this Supreme Court decision is in part backlash to that. It's like, oh— they they're really doing this they are really um coming up economically they're really bettering their communities we have to have a group of people in this country on the bottom who will do the work that the rest of us don't want to do yeah
0: i i do think that you know a lot of our largest corporations in america their business model only works because there's a large group of people who are desperate um and so They have to work on-call shifts, right? Like they have Mm -hmm. to work even though there's no health insurance. They have to work even though working full-time at this place will not even give them enough money to buy their own food, let alone medicine, let alone a place to live. And so we have to have – we have all of these – you know, this government welfare, which I'm not particularly against, but with the requirement now that they people have to work in order to receive TANF funds or work in order to receive um, subsidized housing. basically, what we've done is say Walmart, Amazon, mm-hmm. the security company that does most of these security guards, you don't have to pay a living wage. your shareholders right. and your, um, CEOs can take a greater portion of the revenue for a personal profit because we will as a country continue to supply you with people and they will have to work for you in order to hold on to the medical whatever housing and whatever food assistance they get through taxes but they will have to work for you and they will not be able to organize they will not be able to quit they will not be able to demand better treatment because they know that if they don't show up and continue to work this job they will lose access to um, you know to stability in a community where their kids can go to school or access to the food stamps that are, you know, barely allowing them to make it. And, you know, that's how the business model works. Like, that's one way that Amazon is so profitable. Um, and and Amazon is actually not, not the worst. Um, so I, anyway, I just...
1: Well, I, here's my hope. Here's my hope. My hope is that this will galvanize, first of all, the black community to fight for access but that it will also galvanize all of our allies all people of color to reaffirm this value of diversity i mean you, like we ha- we always say in this country freedom isn't free diversity doesn't just happen right. you've got to fight for it and the third yeah. my third hope is that um it will cause us as african americans also to turn to rebuild and build new institutions right let's rebuild some of our hbcus that have been suffering because frankly some of our best and brightest have gone to other institutions fine good I'm happy for that but but let's not forget um, we have the ability to um, create social media platforms we have the ability yeah. to uh create some institutions we do not always have i mean corporations know that african americans spend billions so they they want our dollars yet want to shut us out in terms of access and so let, yeah. let let's build some institutions of our own
0: well and i just think it's really interesting that the supreme court made an exception for the military academies right exactly so- yes because
1: we know well there there is a, a there's a there's a um a value At least the Supreme Court said there's a value in having a a diverse military.
0: Right. And so, I mean, I think that's really interesting that there are people who say, look, I honestly, America cannot have the size of the military that it wants to have if it is reserved only to white people. And if all of the officer positions in the military become predominantly white there are going to be less black people and people of color who are willing to enroll and commit and sacrificially serve and risk their lives for an institution where they are they are in the most vulnerable positions and the people who are making decisions are are predominantly of uh, white white and so i think you know it's interesting that we can see it in some spaces but then say well, we we want to reserve the best of other institutions for ourselves. And I the main takeaway that I want to make sure that white people understand because I, I you know, I can remember and I shared on my social media platforms just like my own journey of coming into understanding of affirmative action because I, you know, didn't uh, when I particularly when I was a young person in college and before I had, you know, a a really accurate understanding of American history. I did not understand affirmative action and it seemed unfair to me. And so I understand that there are a lot of people who it's not that they hate black people or that they, you know, want to be racist or think that racism is correct, but they can just say like, hey, fair is fair. Like, why can't we just have one standard? And so I think, you know, even if you, you aren't ready to do the deep dive in the way that decisions that were made by institutions generations ago continue to have effect today, even if you're not ready to do that kind of deep thinking, I do think it's easy to say, hey, wait a minute. If all of a sudden we need to admit people without giving preference to any one race, then how can we still allow legacy admissions that were made in a time when, no matter how qualified they might have been, Black people and people of color were not allowed. When your grandfather went to Harvard, they were not allowed to be there. So if if white people can still have a racial advantage based on legacy admissions, then we don't have race-blind admissions, and we need to be honest about that. And if you're going to get rid of affirmative action, then you need to get rid of legacy preferences as well.
1: Yeah, not to bring up another issue, but I'm still waiting on reparations. Right. I mean, <laughs> no joke. Like,
0: no, I, I understand. If you, you, can... you
1: owe me. You owe. You, right. you just owe.
0: Right. Well, and I think, again, it's important if we know that families today have inherited the generational wealth that came from plantations, um, that came from Jim Crow, like those, no one, they inherited that wealth and they still have it. And so we understand that these are still living financial realities that people are navigating. Um, So, well, I'm now seeing the church electrician has gotten here and so I need to... um, let you wrap this up so I can let him in so we can have lights downstairs. Thanks for listening friends.
1: <laughs> Very good friends. Thanks for listening. If you want to know about more uh, that's going on at Derida Church you can find us on YouTube because our website is down for the moment but uh, please check us out on YouTube. You can listen to sermons there and if you want to know what's happening at the Grove Church you can check them out at uh, thegrovechurchcharlotte.com Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye.